Not too long ago, I, I kept hearing people talk about somebody being a goat. They said, uh, well, that person, they're a goat, and this person's a goat. And I thought, well, that's not very nice, because in the Bible, there's a parable of the sheep and the goats, and the goats are saved, and the, sorry, the goats are lost. Sheep are saved. And then someone told me I was old-fashioned and out of touch, because goat is actually an acronym for greatest of all time. And they're complimenting the person, saying they are the greatest of all time. They're a goat. And uh, I'd like to talk to you about a goat in the Bible. You know, Jesus, as you heard from the scripture reading, said that of all those who are born unto women, there was no greater prophet than John the Baptist. Now, when Jesus makes a statement like that, naturally he's excluding himself because Christ is a prophet. The Bible says there was no wiser man than Solomon, but that would be aside from Christ. I think we all understand that. But we're going to be studying in the next week or two uh, this incredible life and this incredible man and why Jesus said what he said and learn how that applies to us today. One reason that John the Baptist is called the greatest of the prophets is there are very few prophets in the Bible that are prophesied about prophecies about a coming prophet only two I can think of one is Jesus there are prophecies about Jesus coming but you know there are prophecies about John the Baptist so John the Baptist is not only a prophet he is the subject of prophecy that doesn't happen very often let me give you a few examples Isaiah 40 verse 3 the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. John the Baptist, when he began preaching, they said, who are you? He said, it's not who I am. I'm just a voice. I'm a voice telling you to prepare for the ultimate coming, which is the coming of God himself, God incarnate in Jesus. And he said, I've come to prepare for that. And he went into the deserts to do that. Now, probably I should pause here and and explain more about what he was saying. In ancient times when a king traveled, uh, especially if he's on some kind of a royal mission or he's making the rounds through his domain, he had a road crew that went ahead of him because a king would often ride in a chariot and they would fix the road and smooth it out. And they would cut off the high spots and fill in the low spots, the ruts, and smooth the way for the king. And so this is the language that John the Baptist is alluding to in Isaiah the prophet, talking about that mission, to prepare the way for the king. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. You may want to go to Malachi. We've got two prophecies there about John the Baptist. Malachi 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Now, who's speaking here? God. God who? God the Son, Jesus, said, I'm going to send a messenger that will prepare the way before me. Here's Christ telling a prophecy about John the Baptist coming. Well, that would make him a pretty special prophet. He'll prepare the way before me, and the Lord who you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Clearly a messianic prophecy. Then you look in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you, this is the last prophecy in the Old Testament. 
Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. And then Jesus tells us, and we'll get to that later, he said, if you can understand it, John the Baptist is the fulfillment of this Elijah that was to come. But Christ makes it clear in Matthew 17, he is not the only fulfillment. Now, this will probably be the subject of our study next week, but I'll tell you what we're going to tell you, is that in the same way that Elisha came with a double portion of Elijah's spirit, John the Baptist, the angel said, came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. But you'll notice here in this prophecy in Malachi, it says before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Well, that's still future. And Jesus said when they were asking about Elijah coming, Jesus said, I'll tell you that Elijah will come and Elijah has come. He has come in John and yet he will come. So we're going to be learning from the John the Baptist what to expect in this future Elijah or Elijah's. So uh, if you want to hear that, keep coming. One of the other things you'll notice is that when the angel Gabriel comes to announce the birth of John the Baptist, he says he will turn, and this is Luke's, uh, 116, Luke 116 and verse 17, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So it was clearly told by the angel that John the Baptist, this baby, was going to go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah, that he would be at least part of the fulfillment of that. But he quotes it differently than Malachi. It says, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Now you read Malachi and the children to the fathers. But here Gabriel says and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make a people ready, prepared for the Lord. Now, do we expect the Lord to come again? So here Israel was very excited about the first coming of the Lord, and there was a special work that happened to prepare them for the first coming of the Lord. Does it make sense to you that if Jesus is coming again, not, not just as a lamb, but as a lion, that God will have his people do a special work of preparing people for the second coming of the Lord. So looking at the life of John the Baptist and knowing something about Elijah should inform us on what we ought to be doing right now. Turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Gabriel said that differently because I think we often preach that as it's supposed to be talking about family reconciliation which is a wonderful thing for fathers and children to get along. But it's talking about the teachings of the fathers, returning to the teachings of the ancients. It's like when the Bible says, we'll return to the faith once delivered to the saints. There'll be a restoration of truth, repairs of the breach that has been made. And so this is what's happened. Christianity's drifted so far from the foundations that were established by the apostles and Jesus himself. So, just to make it simple, we can talk about five things dealing with John the Baptist. His birth, his behavior, his boldness, his baptism, and his bondage. Okay, his birth. 
Go with me to Luke chapter 1, verse 5. You got your Bibles? And we're going to read a little bit, so please do turn to this if you have your Bibles. I know some have got the old-fashioned paper versions, and some of you have got the digital Bibles. But whatever your device happens to be, I invite you to turn with me. Now, just I want you to notice why it's important to study uh, John the Baptist. Of course, this is a season that's a great transition into the life or the first coming of Jesus. But um, in the Gospel of Mark, it begins with John the Baptist. It's just like a thunderclap comes shooting out of the ocean like a whale. Boom. John the Baptist appears on the scene. There hasn't been a prophet in 400 years. And all of a sudden, there's this prophet that turns the nation upside down. You go to the Gospel of John, it begins with John the Baptist. Here we are in Luke. Luke backs up a little bit, and he talks about the birth of John the Baptist, not just the ministry. And by the time you get to Matthew chapter 3, he is talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a very real character in history. So Luke, he introduces his letter to Theophilus. And he says in verse 5, Luke chapter 1, verse 5, there was in the days of Herod the king, this is Herod the Great, the one who tried to kill all the babies in Bethlehem. He did a wonderful job building the temple. It's amazing. He could be so dedicated to contribute, to build up the Jewish temple and then try and kill the Messiah who the temple's all about. There was in the days of Herod the king of Judah a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron. Notice that both Zechariah and Aaron are connected with the tribe of Levi. Even more than that, the family of Aaron within the tribe of Levi. Her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Now, the Bible tells us Job was a perfect man, upright. Here you've got another example of people who walk before the Lord blameless. As you read in the story, it doesn't mean he's perfect. Are you clear what I mean? I mean, they had godly lives. They were living without reproach. If spies followed them around, they'd have nothing on them. They were consistent, godly people. It doesn't mean they were sinless. So here you've got this priest and his wife, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well advanced in years. Well, I think most of you know where this is going. It tells us that uh, had trouble having a baby. Now, Zacharias means Jehovah is renowned. Elizabeth, her name means oath of God. Even their names have got prophetic significance. So they struggle to have babies, but it's just not happening. So he's in the temple. While he was serving as a priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot, they would cast lots to find out who got what job during the different feasts. His lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So he is in the holy place. He's before the altar of incense. You know, it's the central, just before the veil, and just on the other side of the veil was the Ark of the Covenant, except at this time the Ark is missing because it had been hidden and they never recovered it when they rebuilt the temple. And um, so he's praying there before that golden altar of incense, doing his, um, his office. 
And the whole multitude is praying outside. And it's at this moment, the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. This is a sign of favor or approval. And when Zacharias saw him, he fell, saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. But the angel said, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. Now, he wasn't just praying for a child. He was praying for the coming of the Messiah. They probably figured at this point the idea of having a child was, that was settled. It wasn't going to happen. He says, your prayer is answered. But both prayers were connected. The coming of the Messiah and their having a child were connected. It says, your prayer is heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great, there you have it, John the Baptist, great, in the sight of the Lord. For he will drink neither wine nor strong drink. What does that tell us about John? Who else was given that instruction at birth? Samuel? Samson? This is called the vow of the Nazarite that you find in the book of Numbers. John the Baptist would be a Nazarite. Paintings I saw of John the Baptist, he's got a marine haircut, not biblical. No razor was to come upon his head either. Not only was he not to eat anything from the vine, but he was to be raised as a Nazarite. And um, one of the things you'll notice about John as we study his life, you never hear about Mrs. Baptist. He didn't maybe want to make the same mistakes that Samson made. And uh, so he lived something like a hermit. He lived like a bachelor. I couldn't let that go. I'm sorry. <laughs> in the cave, yeah, in the wilderness, the desert. Anyway, so he shall not eat either uh, strong drink, and he'll also be filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice the contrast. Strong drink, it's a different kind of spirits. He's not strong drink. He's got the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb baptized by the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. One of the keys to his greatness. What does he do? Turns many to God. He'll also go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make a people ready, prepared for the Lord. And Zacharias said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. Can you imagine talking to someone who had left the presence of the Almighty? And I was sent to speak to you. Isn't it neat to know that Gabriel, by name, speaks to Daniel 500 years earlier, and he hasn't aged a bit? It'll be nice to have those glorified bodies, huh? I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings, good news. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words. Unlike Mary, who later says, the handmaid of the Lord is before you. She accepts the word of God. Uh, Zacharias says, no, how can this happen? Now, should he have known better? Had he read in the Bible about other people that were kind of past their prime that still had children, like uh, Abraham? And um, 
the Shunammite woman. You know, there are seven examples up to the time of John, including John, of barren women that miraculously had babies. Now, I got a little amazing fact for you. You know what the age is for the oldest woman in the world to have a child in modern times? 74. I think we got a picture on the screen we're going to show you. This woman in India, 74, she and her husband were being kind of ostracized by their village because they had no children. They continued to plead with the doctors, and the doctors said, well, they're healthy, and this would probably make the headlines. And so the man and the woman, it was uh, in vitro fertilization, uh, helped out, and she had twin girls. And they are all healthy. I think they were delivered uh, via cesarean section. The oldest woman in modern times, according to Guinness Book of World Records, to have, I just want to milk this moment because I've noticed all the women are paying attention. <laughs> the oldest woman to have a baby naturally was 59 years of age. She's on the screen. Her name was Dawn Brooke. And she got married a little late in life and had no plans on having children and got pregnant. And uh, wasn't really happy about it, to tell you the truth. A little shocked. Thought she had cancer. Till so she went to the doctor, said, I've got good news. She said, well, it might be good news for you, but <laughs> 59 years of age, she had a baby. So you've got these seven examples in the Bible. You've got Sarah had Isaac. That was a miracle. Rebecca was barren, and uh, Isaac prayed for her, and she had Jacob and Esau. Rachel was barren. Jacob prayed for her. She had Joseph, and then later Benjamin. We don't know her name, but Manoah's wife was barren. An angel came. She had Samson. Hannah was barren. She prayed. Eli said, you will have a son. She had Samuel. Then there's a Shunammite woman. Elisha said, he prayed for her, and she had a son. And then finally, the seventh is Zechariah and Elizabeth having a miracle. Every miracle that is listed in the Bible, these miracle births from supposedly barren women, they all have baby boys, because each one of those baby boys is a type of Christ. And if you look at each one of them, you can see that in the story. So the angel says, you're going to have this baby. And, of course, they're very happy by the news. Let's go back to our text in Luke, and we'll continue reading there. So he says, you're going to be mute until these things are fulfilled. And the people, verse 21, Luke chapter 1, verse 21, the people wait for Zacharias, and they marvel that he lingered so long in the temple. They're beginning to worry. Thought maybe he had a heart attack in there. But when he came out and he could not speak to them, they perceived he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. He's trying to, and he can't say anything. And his eyes are probably big, and his face is shining, and they thought he has seen a vision. So as soon as the days of his service were completed, he finished doing his job. He departed to his own house, and after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. They must have cooperated with God's command. And she hid herself five months saying, thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach. She's not hiding because she's embarrassed. She's hiding because I guess there's going to be a lot of uh, paparazzi 
that are going to want to know about this. But she's very excited. To take away my reproach among the people. Now, we'll not go into detail here, but in the interval, of course, the angel goes to Mary. This is a subject for a future message. Go now to verse 39 of Luke chapter 1. After Mary discovers that she's with child, she arose in those days and went into the hill country of Judea. Now, Mary evidently, the angel told Mary, just to make sure you understand this, it said, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative. Elizabeth is related to Mary. What does that mean about John the Baptist and Jesus? Their kin also. Doesn't tell us exactly how. I think some tradition tells us that perhaps uh, you know, uh, Mary had a brother that somehow married into the, the daughters of Aaron, but uh, clearly one is from Levi. David's from the tribe of what? Judah. So Mary and Elizabeth, their families also are from predominantly different tribes, but through marriage or something, they're related. And the angel mentions this. Mary wants to know what's it like to have a, a miracle baby, and so she goes to see her cousin or maybe her aunt, Elizabeth. And Mary arose, verse 39, in those days and went to the hill country in haste to a city of Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now Elizabeth at this point is six months pregnant, you'll see. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord, did Elizabeth know that Mary was going to have the Messiah? She did. The mother of my Lord should come to me. For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ear, the babe leapt in my womb for joy. Well, what did the angel say? He'd be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. Spirit-filled. A new birth. I don't want to say much about it, but I can't let this pass uh, without just mentioning that clearly Mary and Elizabeth do not have some worthless fetal tissue. There is human life within them. Human life filled with the Spirit of God, made in the image of God. And so I hope we're all clear that uh, conception is the point at which something sacred takes place. And you have human life. There's no other point in the continuum where you can point to. So, blessed, she, blessed is she who believed. Now, Elizabeth's saying, no, Zacharias had doubts, and so he was mute. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things that were told her from the Lord. Then Mary goes on, and she sings her, her um, prayer. And go to verse 57, still in chapter 1. Luke's got the longest chapters of any gospel, if you didn't know that. Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. And when her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her, as the angel said would happen. So it was on the eighth day, according to the law, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called his name by the name of his father, Zacharias. And his mother answered and said, no, he'll be called John, because that's what Gabriel said. His name was picked. But they told her, there's no one among your relatives who is called by this name. So they made signs to his father that he would have what he would have him called. And he asked for a writing tablet. 
got an iPad, and he wrote, his name is John. He didn't say, well, let's talk about it. Let's, you know, do a lottery. So the angel said, this is coming from God. His name is John. Now, every name in the Bible means something. And the name of John is uh, telling us Jehovah has been gracious. In sending the Messiah, it's talking about the grace of God. And so um, as soon as he announces and says his name is John, then it says that um, once he conceded to what the angel had said, immediately his mouth was open. Verse 64, and his tongue was loosed, and he spoke, praising God. Then fear came on all who dwelt around them. Um, and all these things were discussed throughout the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them kept these sayings in their heart. What kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. I, you know, I, let me just read this. It's, I, I hate leaving it out. The, the spirit-filled prayer of the father. It says, now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he prophesied. So here's a prophecy, another prophecy about John before he begins his ministry. So we've listed Old Testament prophecies and now his own father's prophesying. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people and he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began that we should be saved from our enemies. You get the whole gospel in his prayer. We should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. And you child, here's the prophecy. You will be called the prophet of the highest for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God with which the um, day spring from on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. This is the gospel here. So the child grew and became strong in spirit and he was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation of Israel. Now, it mentions that just to let us know, uh, he did not go to the seminary. He went out in the wilderness. John the Baptist, like Jesus, was taught by his parents at his mother's knee, at his father's knee. Obviously, uh, the priest, Zacharias, and the daughter of Aaron, Elizabeth, knew the scriptures. You look at their prayers, they are quoting scriptures in there. And John the Baptist was filled with a knowledge of the word. Some have wondered when they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found that in the deserts, in the southern part of where the Jordan meets the Dead Sea, they had a community of Essenes. This was a very dedicated sect of Jewish believers that were looking for the Messiah to come. And they copied out the scriptures and they guarded them so carefully they hid them in the caves lest if when the Romans conquered they be destroyed. They wanted to preserve the word and they even practiced baptism. They had baptistries. You can see if you ever go down to Masada and look at these communities, 
they practiced these sacred washings. And so some have wondered if John had been somehow exposed to, to them. And, and um, I don't know, it's just some speculation. There's nothing in the Bible that says that. But he was in that vicinity, and he was in the deserts until the day of his appearing. Now, we've said plenty here about his birth. Now I want to talk a little bit about when John lived. Go with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3. We're going to deal with his behavior. Look at how Luke begins this chapter. He's getting ready to introduce the ministry of John. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of Ituia, the region of Trachonitis and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, there is no better historian in history anywhere than Luke. Luke has just fixed the time for when John the Baptist begins his ministry by saying, who is in charge of Rome? Who are the rulers, the civil rulers of uh, Israel? Who are the religious rulers? Now, there's only one time in history when all of these lives, and we have pretty good history in some of the Roman Caesars and even Pilate and the Jewish high priests and when they ruled and, and Josephus and others comment on that. And so we can zero in with a great deal of accuracy about when John began his ministry and it would be about 26 AD. Maybe a little before that because he lived in the wilderness. We don't know exactly when he got his prophetic calling but just suddenly he began to preach. Someone went down to haul some water out of the Jordan, and here was this fellow that was wearing camel hair. We don't know if that means he had clothing that was woven from camel hair. Some camels have longer hair. They're called alpaca camels. I made that up, but they're in the same family. And uh, then there could have been camel skin. Um, and um, he's, you know, eating locusts and honey, and he's got long hair, and he stands up and he starts preaching, the kingdom of God has come. Repent. And there was such power in what he said. He's talking about the Messiah coming. And this is during a time when people were really struggling under the oppression of Rome, and they were looking for the Messiah, and they were getting ready to launch a rebellion. And someone said, have you seen the wild guy down by the river? And others went down. He started preaching, touch their hearts, repent of your sins. And he knew exactly what sins to talk to them about. He was a prophet. And he's spelling out their particular sins. And then he told others. And the knowledge of his preaching and people who decided he, he got his own disciples that began to follow him. And a revival swept through the land. And along with his preaching, he was baptizing. But we'll get to that in a, a little bit. So he, he pinpoints very accurately when it was that he began his ministry. Probably 26 A.D., is when he really came on the scene just like a clap of thunder. And then it talks about his behavior. Read in Luke 1.15. It says, He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink neither wine nor strong drink. It tells us he's a Nazarite. Filled with the Holy Spirit, the child grew, became strong in spirit. He's physically got a strong constitution. He's in the deserts. 
Matthew 3, verse 4, Now John himself was clothed in camel hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Every time I read that, I really liked John the Baptist, but I just cringe whenever I thought about him eating grasshoppers. And someone told me once, they said, well, there was another carob tree that grew in that country, and they call it St. John's bread because they said it was actually not the grasshoppers, but it was the carob pods that he was eating, and that made me feel much better. But I have to be honest with you, friends, as I've studied it, there's almost no evidence that he was eating carob pods. I, yeah, I'm afraid he was eating grasshoppers. But you read there, it says in Leviticus 11, 20 to 22, locusts were permitted. Now, neither locusts or carob pod are available all year long. I think one is probably easier to keep than the other. But, um, you know, I, I did a little research yesterday. The United Nations has encouraged more people to eat insects. Not just because they're nutritious and healthy. It's a healthy meat alternative but because the insects produce fewer greenhouse gases than most livestock, and it will help with global warming. Eat more bugs. But it is true that grasshoppers, it's very common. You know, Mexico, they eat them. In Africa, they eat them. And in the Middle East, they're, they're, you weren't allowed to eat any insect except locusts and things in the crickets, things in the locust family. And they say that they've got all kinds of vitamins and rivel flavin and fiber and f more fat in them than m most meats. And I'm not trying to persuade you. I'm a vegan. I'm not going to do this. I'm just saying that the reason it says this is not because it's the only thing he ate. Oh, and the honey is, you know, honey along with the bee pollen is very nutritious. Um, and I read that in the Middle East, in Israel, there are what they call bee catcher birds. Beautiful birds. They're multicolored like rainbows. Beautiful birds. They catch bees out of the air. And if bee catcher birds find a human that breaks open hives, they don't eat the honey. They eat the bees. There are several places in the world where humans have developed relationships with bee catcher birds, and the bee catcher birds know where the hives are. They will direct the people to the hives. The people smoke the bees, open the hives. The bee catchers get the bees. The people get the hives. And next time the guy's looking for a hive, a bee catcher bird will fly near them. They'll follow them, and they'll direct them to a hive. Have you heard of this before? It's amazing. So, you know, in order to have a good supply of honey and know where all the bees are, you might be doing something like that. But I'm sure he ate other things. The reason it says that his diet was locusts and wild honey, it's basically saying he ate a very simple diet. He wore very modest clothing. He lived a very austere life. He did not live in a fine house. He lived in the wilderness in probably a very simple dwelling his life was one of simplicity and modesty because he didn't want anybody going to him. He wanted his life to point to the Son of God. So we see in his behavior that he is a, um, he's a very committed, austere, dedicated prophet. Can you think of another prophet that lived in the wilderness and was fed by animals? Elijah was fed by ravens. And he ate a very simple diet, whether he was by the creek 
or he was in the widow's attic. It tells us that uh, he lived. And what did Elijah wear? It says a leather, uh, he wore a coat of hair and a leather belt. So John the Baptist is wearing the same clothing. Now, I'm not going to get today to everything I wanted to get to because I want to respect your time. And this might be, this sermon is something like a Makita drill. When you have a lithium battery, all of a sudden you're drilling and it just stops. It doesn't slowly run down. (laughs) But we still need to talk about his baptism. We need to talk about his boldness. We need to talk about his bondage. Because John the Baptist goes through some severe trials where he is actually imprisoned because of his boldness and his preaching. And he's wondering if he's been forsaken of God. It'd be terrible to go from living free like that in the desert to being in a dungeon. And, um, and he is the greatest of the prophets. Now, maybe I will conclude by sharing that thought with you. Five points. Why is John called the greatest of the prophets? Jesus said... There is no one among those born of women who is greater than John the Baptist. Luke 176, you will be called the child. This child will be called the prophet of the highest. Luke 144, from the womb, he announces Jesus. In John 1 verse 6, it says, there was a man sent from God. John is a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not the light, but he was sent to bear witness of the light. That's something we should do. And in Luke 7, 28, Jesus says it a little differently. I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. In Luke 1, 15, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Why was John the Baptist the greatest? Okay. We'll conclude with this. Because he was prophesied by the prophets. He's the only prophet that was foretold by prophets other than Jesus. Not only is he the speaker, he's the one spoken about. Two, because he had the privilege of showing the fulfillment of their predictions. All of the law prophesied till John, the Bible says. Now, who do you think is the greatest Old Testament prophet? I just told you. John the Baptist. Well, Pastor Doug, I turned to the book of Matthew, and that's the New Testament. The New Covenant had not begun yet. Is that right? When does the New Covenant happen? Well, Lord's Supper, death of Jesus, resurrection, when it's sealed in his blood. John, you could say, is the last of the Old Testament prophets. See what I'm saying? in that he is the bridge. John is the bridge messenger between the Old and the New Testament. But he's still living in the era of the Old Testament. And after 400 years of silence, all of a sudden he speaks and says, the Messiah has come. He is the first martyred for preaching about Jesus. We often say Stephen was the first martyr. Well, after the cross... But Stephen's not the first one martyred for preaching about Jesus. John the Baptist was martyred because of his preaching about Jesus. Point number four, it says all of Judah 
and Galilee, they all go out to hear him preach. He is probably one of the most successful evangelists, baptizing thousands of people. So he's great in that respect. He brings a great revival. Only one I can find in the Bible that may have brought a bigger revival is Jonah, who converted a whole city, but Jonah's heart wasn't even in it. So you got John the Baptist as one of the greatest, most successful uh, preachers. By the way, his arrest and execution are also mentioned by Josephus, and the other historians talk about John. John was a real character in history. Do you know there's more about John the Baptist in history than there is about Alexander the Great? But people doubt John the Baptist. How could you say he's the greatest prophet, Pastor Doug? He never performed a miracle. There's no book that he wrote. You got a book of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, great prophets. Didn't write a book. He didn't perform a miracle. He's the greatest of the prophets because he introduced the Messiah. He had the greatest, all of the other prophets would want to trade places with John to be able to say, behold the Lamb of God, here he is, to lay hands on him and be able to baptize him. And finally, and this comes out later, he's martyred for Jesus. He is the pivotal prophet between the Old and the New Testaments. Well, friends, this is, um, this is the message of the Bible. John came to prepare the way of the Lord for the first coming. You and I have a work to prepare the way of the Lord for the second coming. John, in doing that work, he went through some trials. He was ultimately imprisoned, and yet he remained faithful. We may go through some trials in the future ahead for sharing the good news, but uh, we want to be faithful. We're going to learn from John. Amen? Amen.